University, teaching spiritual formation and contemporary culture. And um, I am so thankful to be here with you. This is a wonderful gathering. How, uh, how many of you have been at least here three times now? We've had a three gatherings. Just, just to see the, the old timers here. Fantastic. Great. Well, we are, we're in for a treat if you're a first timer here. Um, I've been asked to introduce Dallas, and I, I, it's, it's an absolute privilege to be able to do this. Dallas has been a friend of mine for over 25 years. We teach together. Um, I, I have probably heard Dallas speak more hours than anybody on the planet. And I, I mean, uh, just because of, of just the circles we run in and things. And, and I, I'm never, ever disappointed. I may not understand everything he says. <laughs> But, but I got to tell you, I, I am, uh, it, it's, it's funny, do you remember the, the, the little contact capsules, you know, for colds, you know, contact with the little tiny little balls in there, and you, if you pull it apart, all these things come out? Well, when, when you hear Dallas, oftentimes, it's like taking a contact, and one of those little thing, things pop every now and then, like, oh, I get it. I get what he just said. There's something there that was very profound. Have you, have you experienced that in his writing? How many of you have read Dallas? Okay, good. Okay. How many of you have heard him speak? Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I will often get people come up to me, uh, you know, because they know that I work with Dallas, and they'll kind of get me aside. They'll say, hey, t tell me. Come on, Keith. Be, be honest with me. Is, is Dallas the real thing? You know, they want to know. I mean, He's, you know, he's got some profound things, does, but does he live that? Because, and I, why are they asking that? Because there are many people we hear in our world today that have profound things to say, and then only later do you learn that they're absolutely a jerk as a person. Are you with me? You, you know, and you get so disappointed. You think, where, where is the consistency between having great gifts and intelligence and communication and then the real character? fitting together. Isn't that what we all want in our lives as Christ followers? At least I do. I want to see that gap narrowed, right? Well, I have to say that I, I have known him a long time, and he is the real deal. Uh, he's, he is the real deal, and uh, you're going to get to hear some great things. He's a, a world-class philosopher and theologian, much like Jesus was a world-class philosopher and theologian, much like Paul was a world-class philosopher and theologian. And you're going to get some wonderful things to ponder that will deepen your life in Jesus Christ. So will you join me at this time in welcoming Dallas Willard? Well, after a kind introduction like that, I'm not sure I should say anything. I might ruin my reputation. <laughs> I think that's the nicest way I've ever heard of saying it takes you a while to figure out what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, and thank you for coming. Now, I've been given my topic to speak on, and I, that's fine with me. And you'll find it in your, in your little booklet, I think. Living in the knowledge of Christ and his kingdom. Living in the knowledge of Christ and his kingdom. There's a great deal more there than we can cover in the 40 minutes that we have and hopefully a time of questioning afterwards. So I want to just talk briefly about knowledge first. And then I'll spend most of my time on living in the knowledge and the reality of the kingdom of God, also known as the kingdom of the heavens, in order to emphasize where the kingdom of God acts from, namely from the atmosphere around you, right where you are. So let's first just say a word or two about knowledge. Uh, knowledge is a very common thing. It's, there's nothing per mystical about it. Some things are hard to know, but knowledge in general is a very simple thing. You know something if you're able to represent it as it is on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. You know something if you're able to represent it. Now, that would include talking about it, uh, teaching it, acting on it, dealing with it, 
that's all involved. You're able to deal with things as they are on an appropriate basis of thought and experience, then you have knowledge of it. And knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge enables you to deal with reality. And that's because it involves truth. You see, truth is God's arrangement for us to deal with things we can't see, and not right in front of our nose. If we have truth about what's in our bank account, we can deal appropriately with that fact. We don't have to go and look at the money. You can't anyway now because it isn't really there. <laughs> no. Money's a kind of funny thing now. It doesn't actually exist, <laughs> which can be kind of scary when you start to think about that. But if you have knowledge of how much money you have in your account, however you translate that, well, then you can deal effectively with that and with other things in terms of it. And that's the character of truth. Truth is like the sighting mechanism on a gun. If it is right and properly used, you can hit the target. And truth is like that for your mind and your life. If you have it and you act appropriately with it, then you will be able to achieve the things that you're aiming at and hoping for. I mean, isn't that simple? It really is. It's very simple. And, uh, and knowledge, again, is one of the most common things in the world. You have tons and tons of it. You have lots of it. And uh, that, that also is a very good thing. So knowledge enables us to deal effectively with reality because it involves truth and it involves means of knowledge that we can share with others and others can share with us. And knowledge then helps us deal with life. Now, knowledge basically is always interactive. You really know something when you interact with it. That's why you want your brain surgeon to have operated on a few brains before he gets to you. Right? You don't want him to have just read a book and have lots of knowledge about brains. You want him to have seen a few and to have worked on them effectively, one hopes. And that's the same thing with your automobile or whatever it is you're your suit that you take to the tailor or whatever it is you are dealing with, you, you want knowledge uh, in the person who is working. And you want it on an interactive basis. Now the only definition of eternal life in the New Testament or the Bible is John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's interactive relationship. And knowledge always comes out of interactive relationship. Even if it's knowledge of numbers and arithmetic, you, you, that's why you have exercises in your arithmetic book. Is they want you to have some hands-on knowledge of what you're, you're dealing with. Now the same thing applies to the kingdom of God and to living on the basis of knowledge in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a reality, and when we act upon knowledge of the kingdom of God, we know that reality, and all of the things that we had hoped for and acted for in relationship to it are found to be reliable, just like any other area of knowledge. So now what we need to do is to spend some time talking about the kingdom of God and trying to make sure that we have an adequate basis in thought and experience of our knowledge of the kingdom of God. So we start out by Mentioning, and we'll come back to this, that Jesus' main topic was the kingdom of God. Uh, when he comes, he actually has a forerunner named John the Baptist, or a baptizer, 
who preaches the message in Matthew 3. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens. And it's plural, the kingdom of the heavens, not the kingdom of heaven. That turns out to be important, but I can't enlarge upon it right now. Uh, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the heavens. And uh, John is saying it is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, he doesn't mean it's about to come, but isn't here yet. You have to study the grammar and to convince yourself of that. But I mention it because it is such a common misunderstanding. And there's a whole system of theology that says, well, the kingdom of God was trying to come. Jesus sort of brought it with it. But then when they rejected him, it went away. And it'll come back sooner or later with an atomic cattle prod. And no one will reject it then for sure. Right. So that's a story that we've often heard and you've seen this teaching possibly that we're now in a different period when the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God is not here. Let me just say simply that was not what was being talked about at all. The kingdom of God is here. It was here in the Old Testament. It's here in the New Testament. It's here now. It will be here forever because of whose kingdom it is. The kingdom of God has been around as long as God has been around, and that's a long time. And it will be around as long as he's around, and that's a long time too. Right. So it isn't like it's not here. And Jesus came, he, he used the same language, and when he went, sent his apostles out, he used the same language. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. That means it's available. It's available. And that was the teaching of Jesus. Now, he made it especially available in his own person, and something did happen when he came that hadn't happened before, and more is going to happen when he comes back. All that's true. But there's one gospel in the New Testament, and that is the gospel of the availability of the kingdom of God to anyone who will trust Jesus Christ and walk into it. That's the gospel. Now, when you read the book of Acts, trace it through the book of Acts. From the beginning, in verse 3, Jesus was with his people for 40 days, and he spoke to them about his death and resurrection. Is that what he did? Do you know the verse? Acts 1, 3. He spoke to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now you go to the end of the book of Acts and see what Paul is talking about in Rome, and it will be Jesus and the kingdom of God. Okay? So that's the, that's the gospel. The availability of life now in the kingdom of God. So now then, uh, we'll have to come back and dwell on that a little bit, but let's try to give in good round terms what the kingdom of God is. What is the kingdom of God? Not a political order. It isn't a condition of society, though one day it will be. Listen to Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Thy throne is established from old. Thou art from everlasting. Now, very simply, the kingdom of God is what God is doing. It's what God is doing. We use the old-fashioned word reign, but reigning is something you do. And because it's something you do, it covers an area of activity. And we pray, thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God being done is his kingdom. It's the range of his effective will. Now, if I were to walk over here and pick up my brother's backpack and start going through it, well, that looks interesting. Hmm. I don't know what that is. How are you feeling now? A little violated. <laughs> See, I just invaded his kingdom. His kingdom is what he has say over. Now, you, of course, have a queendom, right? And I don't know. That might be in your queendom. Shall I look into this? No. <laughs> now, if you, if you can understand that, that'll help you get what God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is wherever he has whatever he has say over now, you might say, well, that's everything. Well, but he has decided for a period of time to allow some things to not be in his kingdom. Persons who decide not to be in his kingdom are not in his kingdom. Now, that's an old story that happened. The basic form of temptation in the Garden of Eden was an invitation not to be in the kingdom of God. Adam and Eve were living in the kingdom of God until at one point something happened and they decided not to do that. And they stepped out on their own, pursuing their own kingdom. And human history is the story of that. And any place you see evil or wrongdoing going on, you will see the human kingdom. And that's in families, that's at work. It's rumored to be even in churches you come across that. Where people are pursuing their own kingdom. They are trying to bring things under the sway of their effective will, the English of which is I want that. And so then when you have the clash of human kingdoms, you have violence. And your first case of that is Cain. Cain was an unhappy boy because he did not get what he wanted. His kingdom was violated, he thought, and he was mad. And mad always comes from the violation of a kingdom. That's why people get mad. Doesn't matter how trivial it is. People get mad. In California, people shoot one another over parking spaces. But it's the crossing of the will. That's the human kingdom. Now, that's essential to personality. There is no such thing as a person without the range of their effective will. And we are made to have an incredibly large range of effective will under God, under God. And now Jesus comes and he announces to those who are not living under the effective will of God, he announces to them that they can come back. And that's his invitation. The Lord reigns. The 23rd Psalm is a perfect picture of the kingdom of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, if you are indeed living in the kingdom of God, you will not lack anything. I shall not lack is how it should be read. But once you get that settled, you probably won't want much either. Because you are in the care of the kingdom of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside the still waters, he restores my soul, and so forth, until surely goodness and mercy shall follow me the rest of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, that's the sufficiency of the kingdom. 
that is the presence of the person in the kingdom. Now, just a few things to add on to that, if you've got what it is. It is the range of God's effective will. And that great peace comes from that. See, 1 Peter 5. Casting all your burdens on him because he cares for you. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you. See, that's life in the kingdom. That's living in the kingdom of God. Now, when we are in alienation from God, we have to receive kingdom life from him. And that is what is called the birth from above in John 3. By the way, it isn't born again. There's a perfectly good Greek term for being born again. This is born from above. And what is above, would you guess? God. That's why Jesus, when he prayed, would look into heaven. He was looking at the one he was talking to. By the way, you might try that. That's good, too. There are many ways you can pray. But when you're praying, you're talking to God. And... It helps us sometimes to pray with our eyes open, looking at what we're praying about or looking to God who's going to answer the prayer. So Paul says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are where? Above. Where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Jesus standing for Pilate, and Pilate said to Jesus, look, don't you know that I have the power to kill you? And Jesus said, you would not have any power unless it were given to you from above. Same language, same language. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. Now, how do you come into it? You come into it by God giving you a life from above. That's spiritual life. So he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. You're a good man and all that, but you cannot see in verse 3 and you cannot enter in verse 5 the kingdom of God, which you claim to be seeing. You remember how Nicodemus came up? He said, we know that you are a man sent from God because no man can do these things unless God be with him. You understand that's the kingdom of God, being with him. And the with me language from the earliest parts of the Bible on is just a treasure for understanding what life in the kingdom of God is. People become scary. I, Isaac was so successful because God was with him that his neighbors came and asked him to move. And then they got to thinking about it, and he was so scary, they said, we better get him come back. You read the story. And it was all because they said, God is with you. God is with you. Now, the with you language is all through the Bible. And, of course, it's a part of the great promise. I will be with you always. With you is living in the kingdom of God. With you. It's God acting in conjunction with your life, with who you are and with what you're doing. And the new birth... The birth from above is one description of how you enter the kingdom of the heavens. Now, the scripture does not want us to think that is passive, and every metaphor is only partly true. Your birth, you didn't have a lot to do with it, right? Something, but not a lot. Uh, your birth was something that was primarily arranged for you by other living beings. <laughs> and it is absolutely true that no one can enter the kingdom of God, that is, be living with God, 
except at the initiative of God. That's the truth in the metaphor of the birth from above, the metaphor of birth. No one can do that on their own. No one has ever yet birthed themselves. There's a long story of other people involved in that. Paul tries to capture that fact in Ephesians 2 where he says, You were dead in trespasses and sin. Dead. That's a metaphor that goes with birth. It also has the feature of being incapable. And in that passage, as you know, Paul goes ahead to say, well, nevertheless, you were raised up with Christ in the new life. But now, the Scripture, as I say, doesn't want us to think it's entirely passive. And so we have other teachings. For example, in Matthew 18, except you humble yourself and be converted and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens. There is something for us to do. One thing for us not to do is to try to deserve it. See, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. And Jesus says, except you be Converted or changed or turned around and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of the heavens. And in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, except you go beyond the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, please, he's not talking about going to heaven when you die. Entering the kingdom of heaven or the heavens is not going to heaven when you die. It's present. You enter the kingdom of heaven now. So if you want to go to heaven, go now. Don't wait. <laughs> and that's a standard teaching of the New Testament. Colossians 3, you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. See, that life in the kingdom comes into our life. And we must go beyond the kind of righteousness that defines itself in terms of what you do and what you don't. That's the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee, Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says that. You have to go, not more of the same. That's a terrible mistake that people make. They try to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. It's not more of the same, it's a different kind. And the following teachings of Jesus and elsewhere make it very clear that what you need to do is to go beyond action, whether do or don't, and move to the area of your heart. It is what is in your heart. So he illustrates it by saying, you didn't kill someone? Well, congratulations. Would you have liked to? <laughs> we still have a problem. Right? And the same way with all the other... That, so I hope you understand that's what I mean. That's what Jesus means when he said, go beyond. You want to come to the place where you don't want to kill them. You wouldn't if you could get away with it. Because you love them. It's the heart that you move into in order to become interactive with the kingdom of the heavens. And, of course, that isn't just something we do either. That is also something that we are divinely helped with. But we still have to become active. And once you get over the idea that becoming active is for merit, then you can understand it's quite all right to do things if you can and be helped by God. So the action is always with. It's what God does with us that constitutes life in the kingdom of God. Now, life in the kingdom of God that comes to us through faith in Christ is a matter of becoming his disciple. That's how you enter into life in the kingdom of God as a disciple. 
Disciple means apprentice. It means student. You become a student of Jesus. What are you studying with Jesus? You are studying with Jesus how to live in the kingdom of God. How to live your life in the kingdom of God. Not to live his life. It isn't, that isn't what we try to do. We try to live our life in the kingdom of God. And that restores the creation covenant in Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 tells you who you are and why you are here. It tells you that you are here to have dominion. God said, let us make people. And let them sit around and sing hymns. <laughs> no. Let them have dominion. What's the first thing they had dominion over in Genesis? Fish. Fish. Maybe that's why Jesus selected some fishermen for some of his apostles. Fish. And you go ahead and read the list, because when this started, there were no domesticated animals. They were all domesticated, because they were under God. And there is a profound biblical truth about Dr. Doolittle. People had dominion over animals, and they were to rule for good. And by the way, this is the first and primary truth of environmental ethics. Did you know that? Environmental ethics comes out of Genesis 1.26. But when human beings are messed up, instead of a peaceable kingdom, as the painting has it, it's a violent kingdom. And death and trouble reign. And Jesus comes to restore the dominion of creativity and goodness in human life. And that's what the disciple is learning. The disciple is learning how to do that. And there's a deep and profound truth about things like St. Francis preaching to the birds and to the sheep and and talking to the wolf of Jubio and saying, now, don't do that. Don't, you shouldn't eat people. Um, and the wolf saying, yes. Right? There's a profound truth to that. However much myth there may be in that particular story, it is the calling of human beings to have dominion. God not only creates, he creates creators. And you and I are it. And that's why we want to do that. That's why a little child, when it can do anything, wants to make something and wants to give it to you. It's because that is built into the human soul to create and to give. And it's when people are withdrawn into their own kingdom that they become stingy and narrow and mean because they can't act out of the abundance of the kingdom of God. Now then Jesus comes at a certain point in the story of redemption. He comes to a people who had been prepared by a long history, often a very un unfortunate and bloody history, to be able to recognize. So you see, that's acting with God. That's Paul acting with God. And it came to pass, that's what he said. Now, he says to these folks in Corinth, do you want to have to deal with that? Say, this is the kind of person I am. I don't have to grab you by the throat. God is with me and he works with me. Are you ready to stand up to that because the kingdom of God is not in words you speak, it is in power that God exercises. That's the kingdom of God. Now, there's an awful lot else that we could say here about this, but we need to come to a conclusion and let you get in on this conversation. 
life in the kingdom of God, living in the knowledge of Christ and his kingdom is a matter of knowing God's action with you. Comes in many, many ways. One in the care that he has for you. Remember all that stuff about the flowers and the birds? Hey, that wasn't just pretty language. That's the reality. That is Christ saying, if you are alive in the kingdom of God, this is a perfectly safe place for you to be. A perfectly safe place. See, when the guys were excited in the storm in the ship and it was about to sink, and they woke him up and he quieted the ocean, he said to them, Why were you worried? Why were you worried? That wasn't just, didn't you know the boat wasn't going to sink? That was, if the boat did sink, you are still taken care of. You are perfectly safe in God's hands. This universe, this world, even if it's a wicked world, is a perfectly safe place for anyone to be who is alive in the kingdom of God. The care of God. Now that is why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever else you may do, do all to the glory of God. This is whole life in the kingdom of God. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Now, how much is left out of that? Whatever you do, how much is left out? Nothing. Do all to the glory of God. That is, do everything you do to make God's greatness apparent. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and think you're wonderful. No. They may not even notice you. They're looking at God. They're saying God is wonderful. See? One final verse on that. Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God giving thanks through him to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name. You act in the name of someone when you do it on their behalf from their resources. You act in their name. You can give your power of attorney to someone. That empowers them to act on your behalf and from your resources. And that's exactly what is presented here. There's a wonderful book that has just been published <clears throat> entitled The Call. And I'm sorry I've forgotten the author's name, but it's just been published. A wonderful book, and what it is about is about work. And there's a passage in this where uh, it's talking about some young Filipino men who were thinking of joining the Maoist rebels. And they ask asked by a missionary what they saw in Maoism that they didn't see in Christianity, the leader said this, Sir, Maoism provides us young people in our present situation with four essential things. A unified and coherent view of the world, history, and reality. Secondly, a definite goal to work for, live for, and die for. Third, a call to all people for a common fraternity. And fourth, a sense of commitment and a mission to spread the good news that there is hope for the hopeless. The fact is, sir, that the Christian faith in all of its beauty seems to be unable to provide us with such a vision. Now, your heart goes out 
immediately in sympathy for these young people. What they had heard of Christianity was not Christianity in any sense that Jesus would recognize. They had not heard the gospel of life in the kingdom of God. They had not heard that. Can you stand one more quotation? This is from the historian Will Durant. It's the first of the notes in the renovation of the heart, if you care to make a reference to it. The historian Will Durant correctly grasped the role of Jesus as world revolutionary, quoting him. He is not, Jesus is not concerned to attack existing economic or political institutions. The revolution he sought was a far deeper one, without which reforms could only be superficial and transitory. If he could cleanse the human heart of selfish desire, cruelty, and lust, utopia would come of itself. And all of those institutions that rise out of human greed and violence and the consequent need for law would disappear. Since this would be the profoundest of all revolutions, beside which all others would be mere coup d'etat of class ousting class and exploiting in its turn. Christ was in this spiritual sense the greatest revolutionist in history. You only understand that if you do know who Christ was and if you understand the message he brought and the reality of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the heavens and then you begin to see that he answers, and we know the illusions of Maoism. Maoism is just one other degraded, miserable attempt to respond to the needs of humanity. And Mao himself was really beyond description uh, in evil. Jesus is the true revolutionary to live in knowledge of the kingdom of God is to live in a revolutionary way which takes the upside down world and turns it right side up for the first time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Dallas. Maybe maybe you could just you could just have a nice little seat over here. Okay. I might fall we're gonna, off. We're gonna we're gonna ask I might a few fall questions. off that thing. Uh, yeah, that's all right. Or, or over here. That is the <laughs> that's a little closer to the ground. Yeah. Uh, be thinking of a question or two before we before we go. We're gonna have a little little discussion here. I know there may be questions. So when you stand up, say your name and, and give a question. But I want to ask something first, Dallas. Um, this gospel of the kingdom that mm -hmm. Jesus preached, what is the relationship between the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of God and the church? The limits, the distance, what, define that for us. What's the difference between the two? The church is a result of the advance of the kingdom and the advance of the kingdom is the function of the church. But Jesus did not send his people out to found churches as we know them. He sent them out to establish beachheads of the kingdom of God in real human life. And then out of that came churches. So now they went out to make disciples, and they gather them together, and they teach them. And what we know of churches, your word ecclesia, of course, is just right. These are the called out ones. Who are they? They're the ones who have been called in to the kingdom of God. The called out ones are the ones who have been called in, who have been brought into a life that is from above. Now, there's much confusion about this. You still hear people from some churches saying, I won't bother to mention it, it doesn't matter, uh, who say that the church is the kingdom of God. And uh, it's just unfortunate because, of course, uh, the kingdom of God is much greater than the church. And, and all of like one reason why we are so refreshed when we go into nature is because that's an expression of the kingdom of God. It's not just dirt and rock. 
It's an expression of the kingdom of God, and we, we receive a sense of God's greatness from it, and perhaps we don't know who to thank. Uh, that's one of the drawbacks for being an atheist, when you feel thankful and you don't, there's no one to thank. <laughs> um, I think that's Chesterton, you know, either Chesterton or Kierkegaard said everything worth saying. Uh, maybe Mark Twain. Okay, we've got about, uh, about seven minutes or so. So who's got a question? Stand and, and just say your name, and, and we'll get that question out to Dallas. Anybody got a question? Eric. Well, go, you want to start with the understanding of the kingdom of God. So we've talked about that. Now, the true Israel, the Israel of those who are circumcised in heart, which is recognized from the uh, early books on, uh, that is the Israel which is alive to God and living interactively with him. Now then, until Jesus came, the nation of Israel with its ordinances were the street address to the kingdom of God. They were the street address to the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes, he's very careful to handle that connection. And he himself does not go out of the ethnic identity of Judaism. He does not. And he tells, for his time, he tells his apostles, don't do that, don't go out. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now then, when that is preparation is laid, and he is ready now to leave, he tells them, make disciples of all ethnic groups. And that is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in thee and in thy seed, all families and nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that's what's going on here today. In his seed, in the seed of Abraham, we are blessed. That comes to us through Christ. And now the issue is, is there another way? Well, the best one I know is through Christ. I don't need, I think, to get involved in saying you can't do it this way, you can't do it that way, and you can't do it the other way. Just say, look, Christ, consider Christ. Trust him. If you have something better, congratulations. And I think that is the way we approach it. And one can get in an awful battle over these things with people. And uh, feelings get hurt and all of that sort of thing. I think we just simply say, look, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who died on the cross unjustly for the sins of the world. If you've got something better, go with it. Go with it. I don't know of anything better, and I'm prepared to discuss with anyone the merits of the various ways. Okay, we've actually got about 10, 10 15 more minutes. Oh, so, wonderful. So we I have can few more. wear you Matt, completely I, out. Yeah, we'll wear you out. Yes, yeah. That's why. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, when you say you, you don't mean me. No, but right. uh, yeah. Yeah, you mean that that's the way it would normally go. Right. Can you explain the intersection between the way that you're talking about the gospel of the kingdom right. and the way that I think you understand what I'm talking about? Yes. The way that's typically articulated and we're no, in the seal of our That's right. 
Now, you know, actually, the cross emerges rather late in church history as the primary theme. And you can check that out historically. The theme, at first, is resurrection. And that is the triumph of the kingdom of God. That is God saying, hit me with your best shot, and I'm still above it, right? Because what the resurrection does is confirm everything Jesus said about the kingdom. And uh, the uh, cross comes in because God and the world are on a collision course. And God is willing to go through the collision in order to reach humanity with salvation or deliverance. Now, deliverance is a broader topic than forgiveness. The, the concentration on the cross as it is done, need not be this way, but as it is done, is made because people have a theory of the atonement which they mistake for the gospel. And they believe that that theory of the atonement is very familiar to all of you. The theory is that at the cross, what happened was every pain which you deserve to suffer for your sins was actually suffered by Jesus. And if you will believe that, then you will not have to suffer. End of gospel. And here you are on the highway of life with your hood up waiting for death to go home. So the theory of the atonement that is preached as the gospel leads to the exclusive function on the cross. Not Paul's idea. As you recall in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ is essential to the atonement. He died so that we could die with him. He is risen so that we can live with him. But the life we live past the cross is the supernatural life of life in the kingdom of God. Right? Now, you know, I can tell that some of you are a little uneasy now, and I apologize for that, but we have to really carry through with this. The main reason for the cross from a human point of view is to make sure that everyone knew that Jesus actually died. That's why he was not trying to avoid the cross in the garden. He was trying to get to it. Mm. Trying to get to it. He had it carefully planned out. You never want to think of Jesus as a victim. He was playing Pilate and the chief priest like a piano. <laughs> he knew exactly what they would do, and he was going to see to it that the highest religious system in the world, which was Judaism, and the highest legal system in the world, which was Roman, would come together and do the worst deed in the world, which was kill the perfect man. And in that way, to put an end to any pretension of human righteousness. That's what you see when you look at the cross. You see the end of human righteousness. Now, there was something that also happened between him and God. No doubt about that. But I would uh, tremble to try to tell you with great certainty what that was. But I know that this side of the cross, God acts differently to human beings than he did before. 
I think it has to do with the fact that the best people in the world killed the best man in the world. And now in the light of that, I see God and his love in a way that makes it possible for him to act towards me in a different way. So when you hear discussions of the theory of the atonement, you'll see them divided between objective and subjective. That is not a choice. It's both. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Reconciling. God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What kind of love is in God? That's the kind of love that's in God. It forever abolishes the idea that, joy, that God takes any joy in the death of the wicked. It is not something he desires. God is not trying to get people out of heaven. He's trying to get as many into it as he can. So the cross is essential to the Christian gospel. And there are many reasons why it's essential. But it is not the end. And when Christ said on the cross, it is finished, don't saddle that with the theory of the atonement. Understand that he was referring to the days of his flesh. They were finished. I'm sure it was a great relief to him to have it over with. It is finished. But the atoning work of Christ continues, and it continues up to today, because he is the atonement. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Another question, yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good fear. I, I'm, a, I talk with assurance, perhaps, but you know, it's, it's. I can't say every other word. Well, I think. I do. It's not bad. We should be very careful about. It. You know, when when I'm having a conversation with someone who, who, God is clearly working in their life to invite them into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So, could, could I, I'm one of your students. I come to you after class and say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in Jesus. What do I need to do? How, you know, can you walk us through how you would uh, have that conversation? Yes, indeed. I would say get a real good look at him, at Jesus. Understand what he's saying, what he represents, and who he is. Make a beginning on it. I mean, it's, that'll last for quite a while, trying to do that. But as once you begin to get that, then you begin to put into action what he tells us. And that will depend a little bit on who you're talking with. If you have a person who is in fact laden with guilt over their sins, which will be a relatively rare occurrence today, uh, then you should tell them that Jesus died for their sins and that the way is clear now to come to God because of Jesus Christ. Not because of what he did alone, but because of who he is. So that's what I would do. Now, I would want to get to know them well enough to try to understand where is the issue of the kingdom in their life. It might be a family matter or a business matter or uh, something of concern to them about their life, about whether or not they will be married or have children or be reconciled to their parents or there's any number of things. That's where I would start. And I would talk to them about how they could handle that issue by relying upon Jesus and the presence of the kingdom. And then I would say, now, let's take some steps. Like I very often because you know this issue of parents and children is such a serious one. And many people have not been able to come to the place where they can honor their parents. 
So I begin to talk to them about specific things they might do to approach their parent. And I tell them, now do that, expecting God to do something. Fundamentally, what you want to do is put people in a position where they have to expect the action of God in their lives. Right? Now, the woman at the well is probably worn out from us using her as an illustration. <laughs> okay. But actually, it illustrates a lot of wonderful things. You know, because Jesus just got right in there with her. Um, he wanted to talk about her, shall we say, marital status. And there was a real problem. And so he goes right into that and begins to move into steps that she can take. And uh, this lady uh, went back into town and began to say, I met a man who told me everything I did. Well, half the men in the city thought, hmm, wonder if he told her about me. And he really got in motion. The main thing when you come to deal with people about entering the kingdom is get them in motion as quickly as possible. Uh, I mean, frankly, that's one of the reasons why invitations and coming forward actually do a lot of good for some people. Because it puts them in motion. Now, it's not a righteous ritual or anything like that, but still, you have to put people in motion. And you will notice that nearly every time Jesus healed someone, he gave them something to do. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Pick up your bed and walk. Stretch out thy hand. And the answer is, well, I can't stretch it out. I'm crippled. Stretching it out is putting the kingdom of God at issue. Is it there or isn't it? That man found out he could do something he couldn't do, didn't he? That's the kingdom of God. That's how we grow, is by stepping into it. Whatever Jesus said, we can do. There isn't a thing he told us to do that we can't do with him. See, not by ourselves, but of course, that's the whole issue, is learning not to act by ourselves. One way of doing that is to do something you can't do. Love your enemies. I can't. Of course you can't. Do it anyway. And you'll find you can. Because when you step into it, it happens. In John 14, that wonderful chapter, Jesus says, Keep my commandments, and I will send the Holy Spirit. The natural human thing is to say, Will you send the Holy Spirit first, and then I'll keep your commandments. But it does not work that way. You act for what you can't do, and it happens, and you realize God was W-I-T-H-U, with you. And our knowledge of the kingdom and living in the kingdom is directly proportional to what we are prepared to do that we can't do. One last question here before we go. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's moving beyond the righteousness of the scribe and Pharisee. That's right. Subtle 
Well, getting the heart is actually a process. And in, in teaching people this, you always have to help them know. Uh, now, we're going for the heart, and the heart means basically the spiritual side of you, the non-physical side of you, the emotions, the thought, and so on. So now, if, you're, if they're ready to go, then you can begin to help them get the heart. And that will involve teaching and practice and learning over a period of time uh, just to illustrate because there's such a pervasive problem with pornography. I mean, how do you defeat that? You don't defeat that by trying not to do it. That's the Pharisees' route. Frankly, you do that by learning to look at people in a different way. You learn to see a man or a woman as God's creature with an eternal destiny. And your difference of understanding. Now, there, you have to go through a process to get that. And that's why we need accountability groups. We need good teaching. And we need all kinds of things to get that. But that's what we're aiming at. We're, we're aiming at being in a position where um, someone was interviewing me about this uh, in sports and how sports uh, people, men involved in sports, are so given to this kind of thing of pornography. And uh, uh, what you want to come to is the place where you look at something that might provoke you or excite your lust in a different way so that you simply don't come to that position. Now that's true all the way from uh, donuts on up, I mean. Uh, you, you come to the place where you can look at a donut and say, who needs it? You know, not through gritted teeth, like, who needs it? I need it. <laughs> you see it for what it is. That's the progression that you go through. Now, if we're going to make disciples and teach them to do everything that Jesus said, that's what we do. We don't just sit on them, don't do that. We help them, we teach them until they come to the place to where what we're talking about is not attractive. Frankly, sin is slop. Why stick your head in it? Right? But you have to see it for that. You can't do it by willpower. Willpower will not carry you. You have to have a will that goes through the transformation of the mind and the feelings and the body and you come to the place to where you don't need willpower because you're already set for what is good. And not just not doing what is bad. Right? Because the positive needs to pull you. Chris. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, uh, I don't know about any of you, but I think after that, I, I think I love Jesus more than I did at the start. So thank you. Thank you, Dallas. Um, just a couple quick things. Um, dinner uh, is uh, going to be served shortly. Uh, if you uh, don't know how to get there, you just simply go out these side doors right over here.